We are concluding this morning a series, a five-week series, uh, in which we've been talking about money. And that's a long time for a preacher to talk about money. I'm impressed that you're still here. (laughs) I want to share with you just a simple underlying principle that I have come to believe that really undergirds every time I speak from the Bible about money, uh, every series I've done, anytime I've mentioned it, this simple truth sort of frames the conversation for me, and it is this, that the way you handle money is a reflection of your theological and biblical convictions. The way you handle your money is a reflection of your true theological and biblical convictions, not just what you say, but what you actually believe. Now, I need to give credit for this statement uh, where it's due, and it's not original to me. I did, it is a paraphrase of something that a good friend of mine in Texas used to say, Uh, She has gone on to be with the Lord. Uh, She was a senior adult in our little country church where Sherry and I served, and she played organ for us, and she used to say it just like this, if the Lord ain't got your wallet, he ain't got your heart. (laughs) And that phrase stuck with me all these years, and I realized she is absolutely right, that the way we handle our money really does, really does reflect the God that we worship. And so while people cannot see our hearts, only God can see our heart, they can see the way we spend our money. And that's what makes it so disturbing that most contemporary American Christians are so remarkably ungenerous that the wealthier Christians in our culture have become, the more ungenerous we have become. This has been proven in polls done by all kinds of people the more likely we are to become distrusting and selfish. And perhaps it would shock you to know that, only, that one out of every four Protestants gives nothing away at all. I mean, not, not just to the church. One out of four Protestants gives nothing away to the Red Cross, to the Salvation Army, when the little red kettles are out at Christmas time. One out of four Protestants gives nothing away. And then the generosity that we do practice sometimes itself looks selfish. Let me read to you what Smith and Emerson said in their book, Passing the Plate. The vast majority of the money that American Christians do give to religion is spent in and for their own local communities of faith. Little is spent on missions, development, and poverty relief outside the local congregation, particularly outside of the United States in ways that benefit people other than the givers themselves. So the wealthiest Christians in the world, and at any time in all of church history, end up spending most of their money on themselves, even when they put it in the offering plate. And this, my friends, may explain why some people have rejected the message of Christians in the church. Because they look at how Christians selfishly use their money, and they don't see a reflection of a selfless God who loved the world so much that he would give. Compare the way we act to our favorite verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God is generous, and the world hears the words that we say, and they watch the way we spend our money, and they instinctively know that there is a disconnect between the God we say that we believe and the God we actually worship, because our generosity is a reflection of the God we worship. And that stings a little bit, doesn't it? I mean, if we're just going to all get honest here, 
It, it, it makes me a little uncomfortable to say that. To, to say that my generosity is a reflection of the God I worship. I'd much rather that say something like, well, the way I teach on Sunday mornings is a reflection of the God I worship, or the things I say is a reflection of the God I worship, or, or, or maybe even I'd be okay with saying the way I treat my wife and my family is a reflection of the God I worship, but when you start talking about my money being a reflection of the God I worship, I suddenly get really uncomfortable. I love what, uh, what Richard Stearns says. Richard Stearns is the president of World Relief, and he wrote a book called The Hole in Our Gospel, and he invited us to imagine if just Christians, just people who call themselves followers of Jesus and say they believe the book that I'm holding in my hands, if they begin to change the way that they use their money, listen to what he says. Think about the statement it would make if American Christian citizens stepped up and gave more than all the governments of the world combined because they took Jesus seriously when he said that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. Terrorists might have a harder time recruiting young men to attack a nation so compassionate. Other wealthy nations might be ashamed or inspired to follow our example. Adherents of other religions would surely wonder what motivates the Christians to be so lovingly, so, so loving and generous. The global social revolution brought forth by the body of Christ would be on the lips of every citizen in the world and in the pages of every newspaper in a good way. The world would see the whole gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, not just spoken, but demonstrated by people whose faith is not devoid of deeds, but defined by love and backed up with actions. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the change that could be made? If we, not other people, just Christians, if we would just change our own attitude about money and begin to live our lives in accordance with what the Bible says about how we handle our money, it wouldn't just bring change to our lives. It literally could change the world. So as we've been in this series, Making Change, we've been looking at one passage, three verses. You can find them in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Your Bibles may be creased to that passage already. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. I'd like us to read it together one more time. So if you would, please, let's stand together. Read 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 through 19 together. It'll be on the screens. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. So from this short passage in which Timothy is writing to a young pastor, Paul. Or Paul is writing to a young pastor named Timothy, giving him instructions about how to run the church. It's interesting that Paul thinks it's important that Timothy knows how to handle the rich people in his church. And he tells them, first of all, command those who are rich. And so some of the changes that we've been looking at over the past few weeks are, are these. First, we have, to, we have to move from believing that we're poor to understanding what the Bible says is true of us, that we're rich. That these words aren't written to somebody else who has more money than I have. They're written to us. We have to go from believing we're poor 
to believing what the Bible says that we're rich, that God has richly blessed us, especially those of us who live in America today, we have been blessed beyond measure. And the question becomes, what do we do with it? The question is, why has God so richly blessed us? Which leads us to our second change, from greed to generosity. That God didn't bless us so that we could simply increase our lifestyle. He blessed us so that we would be more generous, so that we could reach out and help others. That the extra I have isn't about me, it's about those around me who are in need. But that requires another change. It requires that I stop believing I own everything I possess and begin understanding what the Bible says is true, and that is that I am just the manager of the things I possess. I don't own any of it, but I'm called to manage it from owner to manager. And then last week, what might be the most difficult of all is to move from discontentment to contentment. From discontentment to contentment. And we talked about how our culture feeds our discontentment. And last week I challenged you to stop looking at commercials and stop looking at magazines and stay off the internet and and to go on a spending fast. And I know that nobody did it because this was the best week the stock market had had all year long. And I thought, I'm not going to give directions like that anymore. But if by chance you did it, if by chance this week you just paused and, and, and you, you, you said, I'm not going to spend anything I don't need to spend, you began to battle back against the discontentment that the world seeks to plant deep inside your heart. And we said last week that discontentment is bridled when you shift your attention from what you want to what others need. To become less aware of the things you want And to become more aware of the needs that are all around you. But unfortunately, too often, our discontentment leads to bigger problems that also prevent us from being generous. Too often, our discontentment results in financial debt. And financial debt becomes a barrier to our generosity. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been made aware of a need? And you thought, oh, I wish I could do something about that. I wish I had the resources to help. I really feel compelled to do something about that, but I've found myself in such a difficult financial position that there's nothing I can do. Because because I owe money to somebody I don't know and who doesn't know my name, it has prevented me from giving money to somebody whose name I do know and I could help. But not only does financial debt become a barrier to our generosity, it also can prevent us from walking in obedience to God's command to be generous because we find ourselves in debt. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 23. No one can serve two masters. He will either hate one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and what? Yeah, you can't serve God and money. See, that verse would be easier for me if it said you can't serve God and Satan. Because I get that. Good guy, bad guy. But it says I can't serve both God and my money. And so this week, what I want to talk about, the final change, which may seem like perhaps the the most worldly, it may seem like the least spiritual change of all, it may seem like the most practical, yet it may be the most difficult, and it may have the deepest spiritual significance, and it is this, to change from debt to freedom. To change from debt, being in debt, to being free in order to be generous. Listen to what the Proverbs writer says, Proverbs 22, verse 7. The rich rule over the poor, 
And the borrower is, uh, what's that word? Slave to the lender. The borrower is a slave to the lender. Now that's some strong language, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if you think of yourself as being a slave. Nobody wants to think of themselves as being a slave. You just think, well, I'm just in debt. I've got some credit card bills, and I oh, have a car payment, and I, I've, got some, I've got some debt. But I, I'm not a slave. Let, let me ask you something. When you call your credit card company or, or your bank, if, if you call them and, and you talk to them, what is the first thing they're going to ask you for? They're going to ask you for a number, aren't they? Do you know why they ask you for that number? Because they don't know your name. And because your name doesn't matter to them. Because you are a number. You are a commodity. They have dehumanized you and they have put a number on your life and you are a slave. Now, that's not to say that there aren't banks and financial institutions that have great customer service and ask you for your name and talk to you by name. They should if they want your business. They may say, how's the weather in sunny Florida? They may have those conversations. But ultimately, at the end of the day, Do you think MasterCard and Visa cares about you when you find yourself in a crisis? They don't. Because the lender, the lender is the master over the borrower. And see, this is so important for us to understand that we find ourselves in bondage to our debt and that bondage prevents us from doing all that God has called us to do. I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul said, Romans chapter 13, verse 7 and 8. Paul said this, give to everyone what you owe them. Now, this is an interesting statement because obviously in this day and age, there was so much political turmoil, so much financial turmoil in the world. There were lots of questions whether religious people really should pay their taxes or not. Jesus had to address that issue. I mean, Christians were constantly having to address how much do I live in the world and in the economic system and how much do I try to stay out of it completely? And Paul clarifies it. He makes it very simple. He said, give to everyone what you owe them. And then he clarifies it. He defines it. He said, if you owe taxes... Pay taxes, if revenue, then revenue, if respect, then respect, if honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except, and here it comes, let no debt remain outstanding except. There's one debt you can keep. There's one debt that you'll never pay off. There's one debt that's important. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever, so whosoever loves others has fulfilled the law. You see, here's what Paul is saying to the Romans. That eliminating financial debt frees me to extend the debt of love. When I can eliminate my financial debt... When I can understand that I am just a manager and a steward of that which God has given to me... And when I manage it in such a way that I can live without debt, I am suddenly set free to extend the debt of love. And how do I extend the debt of love? The same way God extended it, by being generous. By being generous with my time, with my talent, and with my treasure. I know many of you have been a part of our Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. We've been offering this fall on Wednesday nights. I love how Dave, Dave talks about this because I, I know our financial world's complicated. 
there are all kinds of different debts, and, and it's hard to know where to draw the line. Here's what Dave says. He says, eliminate dumb debt. And, and I, you know, what is dumb debt? Dumb debt is debt you have that you're still paying for stuff you don't even own anymore. That's dumb debt. He, he said, get, get rid of the dumb debt because of what it prevents you from doing. He gives some really practical advice. Start with the smallest debt you have. Pay it off and roll your payment to the next debt. I want to encourage all of you, if you've not been a part of a biblically-based stewardship education program, please, please, not for the financial good of this church, but for yourself and for your family, would you consider being a part? Being a part of Financial Peace University, being a part of Compass that's offered so. Find something and learn what the Bible says in a practical way to get your financial house in order so that you can be and do all God wants you to be and to do. Beginning in January, we're going to have Financial Peace University offered on Sunday mornings at 9.30. It's nine weeks long. Some of you need to look for that information when it comes out and sign up for it. And I want to share with you three words that I think summarize a financial plan, that I believe the Bible teaches this. I believe for five weeks I've been teaching that it's three words. You'd pay thousands of dollars for this in another conference, but I'm going to give it to you for free today. And you think, well, if it's only three words, why didn't you tell us that it's five weeks ago? We could have skipped all these sermons on money, but you wouldn't have heard me. But let me just tell you this. This is so practical and so simple and yet so powerful. And I dare you to try it. And here's what it is. And the order matters. Give, save, live. Give, save, live. Say it with me. Give, save, live. The Bible's very clear that everything we own comes from the Lord. And that we're invited, not commanded, we're invited. He invites us to try him in this, to give back to him first what he's given to us by being generous. Give first. Second, save. The, the, Bible, the Bible talks about saving not in a way of hoarding, we've looked at that, but in a way of being responsible so that you can be prepared for what God may do in your life in the future. So save. Understanding that the money you save still isn't your money, it's still the Lord's money, but save. And then finally, live. Live on the rest. Notice what, I, I love what Paul said to Timothy, that they could that they be able to richly provide, that God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Live on the rest. Give, save, and live on the rest. See, your debt to someone that you will never know and who looks at you only as a number may be preventing you from being generous those people who do know you and love you and so it's so important that we get out of debt and that we become free and that we extend the debt of love that's what Paul said in Romans 13 that we this way we can fulfill the commandment what commandments he talking about he's talking about a commandment Jesus gave to the disciples in John chapter 13 verse 34 and 35 when he says a new commandment I give to you Love one another. And the disciples are like, Jesus, that is not new. We have heard that. That is not new. A new commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you. And they had no idea what that meant. 
they had no idea what that was going to mean, did they? Because shortly after Jesus gave them that new commandment, Jesus would go and die on the cross and give everything, sacrifice everything for their eternal benefit and for yours and for mine. A new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. That bar is pretty high, isn't it? That bar doesn't just stop at 10%. That bar says, I give it all. I give everything I am. I give everything I own. I give everything I know, everything I possess, everything I dream about, my family, my house, my car. I give it all. I sacrifice it all. In the same way I have loved you, so you should love one another. And then he said, by this. By this, not by what you know, not by how many Bible verses you've memorized, not by how many times you go to church, but by this will all people know that you're my disciples. What is this? That you love one another. You see, Jesus paid a debt he did not owe on behalf of us who owed a debt we could never pay. That's why Paul said this is the only debt that should ever remain outstanding is the debt of love. Because it doesn't matter how much I can how much love I can give away, I can never outgive God's love for me. And so in the way God loves me, he calls me to love my neighbor as I love myself and as he has loved me and to be generous with that love. See, Jesus when he was dying on the cross made some important statements. We call them the seven last words of Christ. And you can find them across all four Gospels in the accounts of his crucifixion. But in John chapter 19, verse 30, he said what may perhaps be the most famous of the seven last words. You don't have to be a Christian to recognize these words. You don't have to read the Bible to recognize these words. Everybody sort of recognizes these words. As he was hanging on the cross right before he died, Jesus said, it is finished. And John records, with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. And when you look at that word, when you look at that, that Greek word, the, the Greek word is tetelestai. And that word, tetelestai, which they translate here, it is finished, was used commonly in the Greek-speaking world of that day and age. And it was actually a word that was used in trade and in business a lot. You see, whenever they found, and they've got they found many, many of them through the Roman world at that time, uh, tax bills or, or invoices. They would find these invoices or tax bills and written across the bill would be the word tetelestai. Paid in full. When Jesus hung on the cross and right before he died, he declared that your debt has been paid in full that's the good news you see that's why the issue of our physical debt is so important because it's a reflection of what we believe theologically and spiritually that Jesus has set us free and we are debt free because Jesus has paid the price paid in full so let me ask you a question why why would you ever want to be enslaved again? Why? 
Why, when you have been set free, when the God of the universe set aside the wealth and the glories of heaven and made himself poor so that you who are poor might be made rich, why would you want to live under the bondage of debt and slavery again? Why would you want to live under the bondage of addiction? Why would you want to be slaves again? Jesus said this, that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And he whom the Son has set free will be free indeed. In fact, you can take it to the bank. He set you free. Maybe we forget that. And so something that seems so carnal and maybe overly simplistic is in fact so deeply connected to what we believe about Jesus. And it's, and it's the hinge upon which everything else depends for us to be able to be generous and live in the freedom of God's love and generosity. Maybe we need to be reminded. Jesus planted reminders for us. Even with the disciples when he said, in the same way I've loved you. And they had no idea what he was talking about. They had no idea what he was going to do. He also, that same night, he took just some common bread and he took the wine that was there. and It was common. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. I got to think, they're probably thinking, remember what, Jesus? And then they saw him on the cross. John did. And they heard the reports. And they heard what he said to tell us die paid in full. And suddenly they remembered. And every time they would take the bread and every time they would drink the wine, they were reminded, we've been set free. Our debt has been paid in full. So this morning as we conclude our series together, I think it's important for us to be reminded the price that Jesus paid for our freedom. And so we're going to partake of communion together. Those who will be serving are going to be coming down the aisles and bringing the bread and Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said this is my body which is broken for you he said do this in remembrance today church may we remember the price that God has paid for our freedom will you pray with me paid in full Jesus, when you look across the invoice of my life and you see the debt that I have accumulated, I am so grateful that written in the blood of Jesus are the words paid in full. And it's a debt I could never repay. And so today, Lord, as we take this bread, may we remember the price you paid And that while we have been set free, our freedom came at tremendous cost to you. Father, help us in this moment to reflect. To reflect on your goodness and your grace and your generosity. We do this in remembrance of you.